Hey everyone, Gomer here. Before we get started, we wanted to take a minute and ask for your help. Since 2014, Ascension has been creating free Catholic YouTube videos, podcasts, and articles to help people like you discover the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. If you or someone you know has personally benefited from Ascension's work, please consider financially supporting this podcast. Any amount is truly appreciated, and we'll go to things like Ascension Presents YouTube channel, The Bible in a Year, Everyone Loves, The Handsome Father Mike Schmitz, and this show, right? You love every knee shall bow, so let's keep it going. To make a gift, please visit ascensionpress.com slash support, or click the link in the description of the show. Again, that's ascensionpress.com slash support. God bless. The Gospels, just as much as human history, have told us the sad truth that the power and majesty of God are easier to handle legally than his divine love. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer Gormley, and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as we continue this drive to look with the disciples' eyes, the original 12, to look through their eyes that the four gospels give us at the person of Christ in order to understand him, his actions, attitudes, behaviors, so that they might become our own. That is the point of this season of Every Knee Shall Bow. And we've looked at this from different perspectives, different angles. I'm drawing principally from two works, To Know Christ Jesus, and What Difference Does Jesus Make from Frank Sheed? And right now I'm doing it with a very strained voice. The pollen count is very high here in Houston, Texas, and I have been giving actually a lot of talks and classes lately, so I am exhausted and my poor vocal cords are too, but we shall endure. So what we want to do is talk about the other side. Not so originally. Okay. Let me, let me slow this down for y'all. So originally, looking at the actions, attitudes, and behaviors of Jesus, we understand him to be the standard of value and priority. And from that, we look at what does Jesus attack the most, which starts with greed, right? The disordered love of money. And then we looked a little bit at religious hypocrisy, but principally at foolishness as a category that Christ himself sets off for us to understand and for us to reject. Principally, foolishness is understood as the opposite of a mature disciple. A mature disciple puts heaven first, an immature disciple, a failed disciple, a potentially failed disciple puts this earth and earthly goods first. Okay. So once we have that understanding, we then move on to, well, what attitudes does Christ favor the most? Well, first we start with Christian prayer, that other place that gives us the face of Christ, that other part of the catechism that gives us, gives us tons of information on what it means to be a a true disciple. We looked at the history of Jewish prayer, the way Christ modeled prayer and how we explicitly taught prayer. But then we look at the actions, attitudes, and behaviors, the self-portrait of Christ in the Beatitudes. So one, we want to avoid the great temptations of money, the lure of money, how money can ruin almost all Christian ministry. 
But next we want to see those who are the actual enemies of Christ and that seems like Christ was going out of his way to stir up controversy with them. And that's the Pharisees, but not just the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and even the party of the Sadducees, although they factor in a lot less. So what I want to do is kind of walk through a couple of examples and big picture points as to why Christ went after the Pharisees so much. And from there, I think we can understand the heart of our Savior even more. So before we go in, let's lay the groundwork. Groundwork number one. I think sometimes, and Frank Sheed points this out really well, in quoting Luke chapter 12, verse 50, where he talks about how his mission is to light a fire on this earth and how we wish it were already blazing. But then he says, how constrained I am until it is accomplished. So this notion of his constraint, these heavy restrictions placed on him, he desires to have the heavenly mission, the kingdom of heaven being brought down to earth. He desires that to happen right here and right now. In fact, in Luke 20, there's this great line where this man brings out his son who has a, a demonic spirit that throws him onto the ground and the kid hurts himself and all this. And he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And what was Jesus's response? This wasn't to the Pharisees. This wasn't to the scribes. This was to his own disciples. And he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And it's fascinating when you see this because you understand that Christ truly is struggling against the lack of belief. If you're listening to this when the episodes roll out live, you will know that we are fast approaching the end of Lent. And if you have RCIA, you would have heard the story of the rising of Lazarus and how two or three times Jesus is perturbed. And he's perturbed, yes, at the crowd of Jews that follow Martha and Mary, but he's principally perturbed at his own disciples. And he's frustrated. Lord, don't, you know, there's going to be a stench. There's this, there's that. He is so frustrated. He is so constrained in his mission that to struggle, he's bearing with us. He's having to deal with our very lack of belief. And it's amazing that when you think about this, that he feels this way even towards his own disciples. Right. Remember when Peter steps out on the boat and then takes his eyes off of Christ while walking on water, he begins to sink. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand and saves Peter. And when he's back on the boat, he rebukes him for having little faith. Imagine what the other 11 must have thought, and they never even got out of the boat. Now, the problem is we see this constraint as almost like an alien thing when it comes to our theological diagrams of Jesus, right? We mentioned that early on. I believe it was episode two, that sometimes we have theological diagrams of what Jesus should be. And then when we encounter, whether it's at Sunday at mass or we're reading the Bible, we hear what he actually says and does. And we're like, meh, kind of wish you wouldn't have done that, Jesus, right? So this is the reality of our theological diagrams being unable to take in the real God man. And that's when our diagrams have failed us, have failed to contain the Messiah. Okay. So what do we do with that? Well, maybe we need to realize that Jesus Christ was resolutely opposed to and made intense attacks on the establishment of Israel. Yeah. You know, we think of Jesus gentle, meek, and mild, 
But that description, as I've already said, would have shocked every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every chief priest, every scribe, the Herodians. Ask the money changers how meek and mild he is. Pontius Pilate. Even Peter and the Twelve would have been like, what? And so this brings me to my next point. Why does Jesus attack and provoke and condemn the establishment? Why didn't he try to win them to his side and to his cause? I mean, we know that there were holy men. We know that they were good Pharisees. Uh, Gamaliel is one of the most revered of all Pharisees in Judaism today. And he is mentioned in, in Acts of the Apostles. St. Paul says that he was a disciple of Gamaliel. Why didn't Jesus go after Gamaliel? Well, there's one interesting note that Frank Sheed points out that Gamaliel said, hey, let's not oppose the apostles because in doing so, we might oppose the work of God. But if this is a work of man, it's going to fizzle out like every other false messiah. So have nothing to do with these men. So what did the Pharisees do? They had them all scourged, told them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. Interesting way of, quote, having nothing to do with these men, right? So what he's trying to, Frank Sheet's trying to drive home is the establishment had already moved on and condemned Christ. They were done with Jesus and they didn't care what even the greatest of them had to say. Now, when we encounter Jesus, the first emotion that is explicitly mentioned in Mark's gospel. So if you read Mark, you definitely did this. Now, the majority of my quotes and examples are going to come from Luke today, because if you're following the homework, you're now reading Luke every day. But in Mark's gospel, so this should totes be old news, in Mark 3, the third chapter is where we first get an emotional glimpse at Jesus. And it says that he is angry and he is grieving. So two emotions right next to each other, separated by a comma, that he is angry and grieving over the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. And in fact, when you start to line up the condemnations that Jesus Christ has of the Pharisees, you end up seeing that he's not condemning bad Pharisees at all. He's condemning Pharisees as a category, the scribes and the Pharisees. He is going after them. In a sense, as Frank Sheed says, Jesus is going after the very heart of Judaism as the Pharisees understood it, generally speaking. You know, Nicodemus was one of the good ones. He maybe sort of kind of converts. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Christ his tomb, he also was a Pharisee. The Acts of the Apostles states that many of the, even of the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees, had converted to Christianity. So it's pretty intense. But the principal concern of the Pharisees is always the outward action. And I want to recall for everyone the quote that I made from Jordan Peterson's new Exodus series that the Daily Wire is putting together. Now, I, I understand you might not like any of the categories that I said, or maybe you're a diehard fan, but one of them was conservative commentator, the very Jewish Dennis Prager. He's a conservative Jew, and he actually takes umbrage with the saying of Christ that any man who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we looked at how in the Beatitudes and with greed that Jesus starts with the heart. But he said that Judaism is different because, yeah, sure, you can have all sorts of perverse desires in your heart, but don't act on them. Don't actually sin against your neighbor, even if you're angry with your neighbor. And Jesus says, don't even say raka, you fool to your neighbor, or you'll be liable to judgment. And Prager reveals the weight of Judaism and to the Christian difference. It starts with the heart when it comes to Christianity. So of all the different groups of people that Jesus could oppose, it would be those 
who deprioritized the heart. In fact, I think you could draw a straight line from the Pharisees to rabbinical Judaism, which is what we have today, to the education of Dennis Prager. The, the Pharisees basically around the 200s committed the oral tradition of the Torah into written form known as the Talmud, and that began the shift from Pharisaicalism into rabbinical Judaism. So the rabbis and the tradition of the rabbis around the 200s um, became what Judaism is known today with people like Hasidic Jews and others kind of taking their point of departure. But this is the approach of Judaism. The external is about the internal because the external is my obedience to God. And this is fascinating. In the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, it talks about the love that God has for us. It absolutely does. In fact, you could say that there's one example of the tenderness of God's love in the Old Testament that's not mentioned in the New, where it shows a mother's love as being iconic of the love of God for Israel. The New Testament really doesn't do that. The closest we come to it is Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that I could have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not let me. But here's the difference. When we get into the first century, we discover something very fundamental with the Pharisees and the scribes as a whole, that they de-emphasized the interior movement. They de-emphasized the love of God and rather focus on the very true divine attribute of his majesty. Or you could say even his power or his holiness to the exclusion of his love, where Jesus Christ, as we looked at in past episodes, shows that the remedy for this exclusionism and the remedy for false desires in our heart is to actually love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, but to do so with the secret sauce of loving one another as Christ Jesus loved us. That begins the purification process of the human heart. But if you emphasize majesty over love, two things happen. One, majesty as God's attribute is easier to handle legally than God's attribute of love, which means number two, that duty, the outward action matters the most. And one of the most interesting points that Frank Sheed says was To me, honestly, this blew me away. He said that as Christian theologians have God himself, the nature of God, divinity, what happens when the divinity unites himself to humanity and all this, all the beautiful theologizing that we have about the very divine human nature of Jesus, the divine nature of the Trinity, Christian meditation has not ceased, right? So God himself is the object of our theologizing. But if you read Jewish history, philosophy was not that big a deal for the Jews. They were not a philosophically minded group. Rather, their focus was upon the commandments of God in the Torah. In fact, the scribe's job was to apply the Torah to ever more minute situations. Every new situation and circumstance that arrived, it was to apply it more and more and more minutely. The strictest of Pharisees kept all of the laws, all of the hundreds of laws and their different permutations, right? And let's not get ahead of ourselves. Like we're so quick to label things as, oh, that's Pharisaical, as if there is no nobility in it. But let's be honest, to obey the laws, to keep kosher and all the rest, 
There is a real sense of self-discipline, an incredible amount of self-discipline. There's a nobility in spirit in this externalism. But at its lowest, these external observances, which can have a tendency to be too highly rated, will actually miss the point of self-discipline. And at its lowest, the twisting of the discipline and all that stuff, it can twist even the precepts and the laws and the commandments itself into self-serving interests. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, this is a point that Pope Benedict makes in his wonderful book, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is something that I think Frank Sheed hits on very beautifully. The Jews as a race were chosen, elected by God. And this is an exclusive claim that God has made over one people. As the great Jewish convert, Dr. Lawrence Feingold says, who's a professor out at St. Louis University, brilliant man, amazing author. You can find a lot of his works at Emmaus Academic. He has this wonderful three-part series on Israel and the church of God. And he talks about how, why were the Jews, why was Israel, and then within Israel, the Jews elected by God? They were elected to be the one to bring the Messiah. But we all know that any sort of being set apart, which is what the word holy actually means, can lead to exclusivism or put better in kind of our modern parlance, elitism. The Pharisees saw themselves as better than other races, right? That's why you have the Jews and you have the goy or the goyim, the, the, the unclean and the clean. But the Pharisees, it even went even more interesting and, and, even, and even deeper in their exclusivism and their elitism. They also saw their fellow Jews who were not Pharisees as accursed. And so let me give you an example in John's gospel, chapter seven. The officers then went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him, Jesus? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, are you led astray? You also have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him, but this crowd. So now they're dismissing the crowd, the uneducated crowd who do not know the law are accursed. And that's in John chapter seven, this notion that their ignorance actually separates them from God is very central to this first century of Jewish pharisaicalism. And the whole establishment was entrenched with this mentality. So as Christians, we are called to start with the heart, with true love of God and love of neighbor. But even those phrases, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, that's the Shema Yisrael, right? That is the creed of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Now, when we think about this, we understand that the law is summarized by this love of God, but the love of God is reducible solely to external obediential actions. And Jesus is trying to get us to look at the evil, the root behind the action, that we don't just look at the actions themselves, but whence comes evil? Where does it come forth? And in fact, it almost looks like Jesus Christ is repeatedly, like I said earlier, trying to provoke the Pharisees. In a way, you could say their laws and the minutely enforced laws around the Sabbath define Judaism at this time more than anything else. How many times is Jesus attacked for healing and all this stuff on the Sabbath day? 
And so when we see this, we see that Jesus repeatedly provokes them by healing people on the Sabbath day. For instance, in Luke chapter six, it says on the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of grain, rubbing them in their hands. The act of plucking and rubbing them so that they could actually eat food. The Pharisees said it's not lawful for hungry people to eat on the Sabbath. And so Jesus responded, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? So he's saying he's making claims to be the son of David, right? That they went into the temple and took and ate the bread of the presence. And Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So that ends in verse five, verse six, on another Sabbath, when he entered the synagogue and taught, a man was there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see if whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find an accusation against him. Verse eight, but he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. And so when he heals it, he does it right in front of them to provoke them. Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And it is right there in that context that verse 12 comes about, which is when he chooses the twelve. It is amazing for us to see all of those times that Jesus Christ provokes the Pharisees on their most essential things, food and drink, washings, cleansings, purification baths called mikvahs, all of these things that they would do. Jesus Christ does the opposite. He says that the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath for all the temple worship. Jesus Christ says that the son of man, that he is greater than the temple, that he's greater than Solomon, the original son of David in whose reign Christ steps like all of these things were provocative on purpose. But listen to this Luke's version in Luke chapter six of Matthew's eight beatitudes goes like this. Blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and and exclude you, interesting, and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And now here's the rest. Woe to you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you that are full now, for you shall hunger. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. So do their fathers to the false prophets. Okay, so Jesus is really driving home this notion of the woes, but he's putting it within a Christian context. Then we get to Luke 11. In Luke 11, we encounter a Pharisee dining with Jesus, that Jesus went in and sat at table with the Pharisees. Then the Pharisee was astonished that he didn't wash his hands before dinner. And what does Jesus say? Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of extortion and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give for alms those things are within and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like graves which are not seen, and men walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teaching, in saying this, you reproach us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also. The lawyers are the scribes. You load men with burdens hard to bear, 
and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. And here's the linking one. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you are taking away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you are hindering those who are entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak of many things, lying in wait for him to catch him at something he might say. So Jesus Christ is challenging the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, the everything that we can call the establishment. And he's doing it because they are constraining, not him, but his people, but the people. And so he came for prophetic witness. Now, like I said earlier, you find this stuff in the Old Testament. For instance, you can find in Isaiah saying basically, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Psalm 50, God says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Right? Psalm 50 repeatedly says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, not just of animals, right? You don't feed God with the blood of bulls and goats. The great Psalm 51, the great penitential Psalm written by King David after the prophet Nathan called him out for the whole Bathsheba incident said this, behold thou, meaning God, thou desirest truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Create in me a clean heart. And then he ties it to the sacrifice. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Right before that, he says, for thou would take no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give you a burnt offering, thou wouldst not be pleased. The only acceptable sacrifice in the eyes of God is not just atoning for sin, sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats, but is a broken heart that is contrite for its sins because it starts with the heart. There are many other things I could multiply here. Like for instance, I'll just give you one, uh, the beautiful and powerful and, and honestly convicting thing for us Christians of Isaiah 58. They're complaining to God. Come on, God, we fast and you don't see it. We humble ourselves, meaning sackcloth and ash, and you're taking no knowledge of it. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You fast to seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. You fight and you quarrel and you hit each other with fists I don't care if you bow and you put sackcloth and ashes on yourself. This is the fast that I choose. And this is in verse six of Isaiah 58 to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. See, the amazing thing is we think by doing these externals that will force the hand of God, but God repeatedly reminds his people in the Old Testament, I see not as man sees, for man sees the external, but I see the heart. 
Jesus, and this is the final point, Jesus is calling us to true conversion. The word metanoia means, literally it means meta, beyond, and noia, nous, mind, to go beyond mind. We use the word repent, but it would be a complete change of heart and mind. That's what Christ is asking of us. That conversion might mean leaving behind old sins and actions, but it is principally the getting of a new heart, which was promised in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. And in Jeremiah, I'll take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus then bypassed the rulers, the religious leaders, the officials, etc., And he goes directly to the people. He goes directly to the people, which is fascinating. The Anawim in Hebrew, the poor of the land. When rigid observance, external observance, becomes an end in itself, that's when it leads to elitism and exclusivism. When, for instance, Jesus rejected unclean food by saying it's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth because it comes from the heart is actually what makes you unclean. He was overturning a vast structure of the Jewish religion as conceived of by the Pharisees and the chief priests, and the scribes. Because when you think about it, this election by God, this radical exclusivism, this elitism can only be born by heroic humility. I mean, think about that. This is Frank Sheed's powerful insight. Only heroically humble people can take the weight of such an election. And we know that such heroic humility will always be the virtue of a very small minority of people. So the shadow cast by this divine election is the arrogance of those who think that they were chosen because they're awesome. That's what Pope Benedict points out. It's not that God freely chose you to make you into a people for himself. It's that of all the earth, the Torah was sent forth and everyone rejected it except for you because you're so good. So instead of divine election, The chosen people were called that because they are the ones that chose the Torah. And so when we have this contempt for the non-Pharisee, the masses of the Jews, the masses of humanity, the accursed Gentiles, the accursed multitude, their vision, the Pharisaical vision was whatever the kingdom of God would become, it would be at the very least theirs to rule. But obviously, as you and I both know today, Phariseeism is rejected by Christians, that we need, as Frank Sheed puts so beautifully, the primacy of spirit and the equality of all men by virtue of our baptism. And that is the only atmosphere that the new covenant law could live. That's the only way, that's the only place where Jesus's radical commitment to love of neighbor and love of God could actually exist. If we had primacy, primacy of the spirit, neither at Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth, will those worship God, right? Jesus says to the woman at the well, this understanding of the equality of all men by virtue of baptism, we are all a royal priesthood. This is absolutely essential. The identity and vocation of Israel in Christ Jesus is perfected and then freely given to all those who claim the name of Christ and are baptized. Before we get to this final section, let's throw it out to a quick ad from Ascension Press. Everything they do is golden. They've got the Midas touch. You want them in your lives. I also want to point out that if you text E-K-S-B, 
to the number 33777. You'll get a part of our mailing list. We don't spam you. You get all of my extensive notes. It's awesome. You should do it. Hi, my name is Father Mike Schmitz. I am the host of the Catechism in a Year podcast. If you've been following along with us, you know that God's plan for us is a plan of sheer goodness, that he wants to bring us into a relationship with him. You know that already. One of the ways that God actually brings us into this relationship and keeps us, sustains us in this relationship is through the sacraments. Again, you might know that already. You might further know that so many of us miss out on the beauty and the power of the sacraments. But Ascension has an answer to this. Ascension has created two new programs. One is called Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation. The second is Received, Your Journey Towards First Holy Communion. We know that our youth, they're our future. And yet at the same time, it's so hard oftentimes to reach them with this incredible news of God's love for them in reconciliation, God's love for them in the Eucharist. If you want to check out Ascension's new program, Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation, and Received, Your Journey Towards First Communion, go to ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free preview. The attack on the Pharisees is a warning to the church. Now, if you think about it, the Gospels were written 30, 40 years after the actual deeds of Christ, you know, around 60, 67 AD. When you think of this, the attack on the Pharisees is already at a point where the Christians are excommunicated from the temple and the synagogue. So this attack is a warning as well to the church because scandals will come. Scandals will befall us. People who are externally appearing to be righteous can cause horrific scandal. In the Larch community, we saw a guy that many people believed was a living saint, was a con artist, and was abusing women. There's other institutes led by great leaders who on the outside looked incredible, but were abusing women as well. We hear of scandals every day of seminarians being abused by the very men that they gave themselves to become disciples under. Scandals will come. And the church had better be warned. All the condemnations, all the woe to you, scribe and Pharisee, all the whitewashed tomb comments and cleanse the inside of the cup first. This will befall everyone, especially those in the church. And Frank Sheed ends this chapter on the Pharisees with a very powerful citation. In fact, it doesn't even give you the whole quote. It just simply says in Luke 20, verse 45, it says, in the hearing of all the people, so that everyone could hear, he talked to the people in the church and said, beware these people, right? In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware the scribes. And if you look in chapter 20, you'll see chapter 20, verse 1, the chief priests, scribes, and elders come at him and attack him. You see in verse 9, Jesus tells a parable of the wicked tenants, which is about the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Pharisees. And he said, what will God do? What will the owner of the vineyard do to those wicked tenants? He will come and destroy them and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, God forbid. And Jesus said, the very stone with the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. So he's calling them builders, calling them the real tenants of the vineyard. But they are fake and false and wicked. In verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests try to lay hands on Jesus that very hour. They sent spies in and by their craftiness, tried to trip Jesus up. And this is where we get the great story of show me a coin, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
In verse 27 of the same chapter, we have the Sadducees coming after Jesus, testing him about the the fact that they disbelieve in the resurrection of the dead. And you have the story of the wife with no children, had seven brothers that she married through in the resurrection. Whose wife will the woman be? Jesus said, in the resurrection from the dead, you're neither married nor given in marriage. And some of the scribes end at with saying, whoa, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Then he probes them. And ends it with this, that whole chapter of intense conflict that you and I gloss over absentmindedly, absentmindedly, he says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and love salutations in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You can hear Christ staring into the heart of every member of the clergy when he speaks these words. And I guess to those of us podcasters too, God bless. Mm